Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's that? Holy water. You keep it away. Uh, It burns! Oh, it burns! The Lovecraft Geek. Could it be time again for the slime bucket of questions? I'm afraid it is. And uh, we'll get right to them. Uh, I just have been meaning to mention something. Uh, Perhaps you were as uh, isolated in a padded cell as I am and didn't know this. Uh, I should have. You remember, uh, some of you might, that uh, I got uh, totally fascinated by the strange, weird menace genre of apparent supernaturalism and uh, degradation and fiendish giggling monks and mad scientists and torturers and all that kind of stuff, uh, precisely because it's so uh, over the top. I got interested, I say, by reading Robert Kenneth Jones's terrific history of the genre called The Shutter Pulps. And I read various reprints. There weren't all that many of them available. And uh, this led me to start my own revival of the genre. Uh, my cryptic publications, uh, Mag Shudder Stories, where we would um, have new tales in the old genre. I even got uh, Jones himself to write one. Astonishingly, he never had. And uh, we would also have at least one each time, of, uh, sometimes a reprint, though not very often, but uh, with surprising frequency, we were able to get unpublished stories written back in the heyday, uh, like the 30s, by Carl Jacoby and various others. It's amazing to me that given the volume of stuff that was published back then, that anybody had anything left over. But uh, these Hugh Cave wrote new ones. Carl Jacoby gave me old ones, and there were various others. So we had a really go in there. Great covers, too. Ten issues of that. Well, I I always thought after that that it would be loads of fun if I ever had loads of bucks to uh, start my own hardcover book publishing concern. And uh, I wanted to collect the uh, fiction of Mindret Lord and uh, Arthur Leo Zagat and Wyatt Blassingame and all these fascinating authors. Uh, but I knew that was a pipe dream. And then, just a couple of months ago, I learned that John Pellin, uh, uh aggressive and creative editor, has done all kinds of great books as well as fiction of his own, he had done this. And uh, I was thrilled to hear that it was Shutter Stories that made him think it might be commercially viable. And he's he's put out loads of uh, anthologies and collections in the genre. I just learned about it, and uh, I my hat is off to him. Uh, he did great work, and there's plenty more uh, where that came from, he tells me. So if you're interested in that, 
pretty strange pulp genre. You got to check them out. Look up John Pellin, P-E-L-A-N, and uh, you'll find loads of great stuff. Uh, summer camp for corpses, uh, you know, stuff like that. Great. Um, but on with the Lovecraftian questions. Now, somebody asked uh, if there was Lovecraftian influence on a particular episode of Doctor Who, which I have virtually never seen. So, uh, no, I'm sorry, that, that's going to come up later. I'm sorry, Dark Shadows, that was it. Yeah, I did see the first several of those way, way back when they first came out. But most of them I have not, and I remember virtually nothing about what I have seen. But I know somebody who does know everyone by heart, the great Mark Rainey, who actually continues the series writing radio dramas for, I think, NPR. But they're broadcast, and he's given me some, uh, some recordings of them. What a guy. Uh, if you know Mark, you know he's just a terrific writer. Well, I asked him about this, and uh, here's what he said. I think there was at least minimal influence from the Dun which horror, and maybe a handful of other HPL tales as early on, I think the thing was called Leviathans, the, the story arc, um, as early on in the storyline, there's a clear statement by one of the Leviathans that they existed before man, before dark spiritual forces became confined to physical bodies, and they seek to return to take their rightful place on earth. The character of Jeb Hawks, played by Christopher Pennock, appears to be very loosely based on Wilbur Waitley, though he's more like the Wilbur played by Dean Stockwell in the 1970 American International Pictures film, although the, Dun although the um, Dark Shadows storyline preceded that movie's release. As the storyline progressed, the farther it got from Lovecraftian themes, becoming more a personal drama between the characters, which only weakened the subplot and the show as a whole. Oh, thank you, Mark. Luckily, I, uh, when I don't know something, which is pretty darn often, at least I know who to ask. Okay. Um... Uh, let's see now, here's, uh, here's a sort of thematically similar question from Katie. She says, is it just me, or is the creature from the Black Lagoon a deep one, and are the Daleks just canned Yithians? Uh, that, you know, uh, I did at least know what the Daleks were, and it never occurred to me, but uh, I wouldn't be too surprised if they were modeled on the original Coneheads, uh, namely the, uh, you know, the great race of Yith. Uh, that's an interesting one. I have to ask any, well, in fact, if there are any Doctor Who scholars out there, let me know uh, if it's more than just a possibility. With the creature from the Black Lagoon, um, I don't know. You, you really have to wonder about that because the creature does seem to look just like the uh, depictions in Lovecraft of the Deep Ones. And based on that, I think I've told you before, I got the great Gary Myers to write up a story uh, where um, they're trying to work out the uh, the suit for the creature uh, for the movie way back there. And I think it came out in 54, the year I was born. 
and they were having trouble as they actually did from what i heard and uh the deadline's getting close and finally one of these guys who uh looks a little bulged eyed and bald and so on says uh, you know i i uh, know a guy who i think uh, i have a cousin who who might be able to help you out and he brings him in and he plays the role but it's no costume right he actually is a deep one and so forth uh, um but yeah you, you can't miss the similarity and yet Really, who knows? It's not that tough to come up with the idea of a fish man. And, uh, and in fact, uh, in the intros to the stories in the Innsmouth Cycle, my anthology from Chaosium, I talk about the uh, previous stories that may have influenced Lovecraft that dealt with fish men of one description or another. But you really got to wonder. It's certainly not unlikely. As far as I know, there are no references in letters by the designers of the costume or anything like that. Uh, but maybe something like that will come up. I dedicated the Innsmouth Cycle and the sequel anthology tales out of Innsmouth to uh, the first to Ben Chapman, uh, the, the land creature, and the second one to Rico Browning, the, the underwater creature. I had the great, great privilege to uh, meet Ben Chapman at a convention once, and uh, what an amazingly nice guy. It was so true. He's gone now. This is, uh, oh boy, 15 years or so ago. I had my daughters with me, and they were old enough to, to know about the, the universal horror movies and such. And I remember telling them, pointing to him, to Mr. Chapman, and saying, this is the creature from the Black Lagoon, that they had the opportunity to meet one of the universal monsters in the flesh. Oh, what a great moment it was. Uh, Katie also says, do you think that King Kong is actually a retelling of Call of Cthulhu? Well, I, I have thought this, and again, I don't suppose it's possible to prove it, but I wrote a, uh, an essay on this in Crypt of Cthulhu number 9 uh, back in 1981, I guess it was, possibly early 82, I forget called Cthulhu and King Kong, where I did point out a bunch of similarities that uh, that this uh, ship finds a boat filled with uh, tribesmen who tell them the location of this island that nobody knows about, and when they get there, they meet uh, amid a bunch of strange architecture, this giant monster, uh, and... Uh, None of that is that obvious, right? Uh, and and uh, it is so similar in terms of the basic plot. Uh, you uh, you do have to wonder, and the dates are right. It's certainly possible. So I, I don't know, but I have suspected the same thing. And again, it may well be that new information is turned up, and I uh, invite, I beseech anyone who knows any more about this to share it with us. Uh, let's see, this is from jerry and uh, plenty of interesting stuff here he says uh, uh excuse me um a quick note of biography my first encounter with hpl was as a very small child my grandfather incapable of censoring himself read me the lurking fear when i was about five i was hooked on ghost stories already but as i grew older the works of lovecraft came to the fore largely because of the rich mythological world view that lay under them 
my favorite HPL story is The Shadow Over Innsmouth. I think I've read it at least a hundred times, probably more. I seem to pick it up at least three times a year these days because I like visiting old Innsmouth from time to time. I know what you mean. It's like it's a place you've been. Uh, I confess that something about the decay and isolation is attractive to me. Let me just pause and interrupt. If this story is so powerful in that respect, it's just amazing how many Innsmouth sequels and pastiches have been written by so many different authors. And uh, loads of them are really good. It's, they really did something there. I've confessed to have written a few myself. Okay. Uh, uh, my favorite later Lovecraftian tale is T.E.D. Klein's Black Man with a Horn. Here, Klein is more mature in his writing and his impression of horror than H.P.L. and many who, who have attempted to write in his style. The story is dreadful, but not in a pleasing way. It, it contains that seed of hopelessness and nihilism that I think underpins a truly good Lovecraftian tale. Yeah, I love that story. That brings me on to my question, what do you think it really means when we say something is Lovecraftian? I can't, I'm sorry, it can't just be about lost books, squid monsters, and hidden mythology. Otherwise, we could call a writer like M.R. James Lovecraftian, and his stories were quite jolly by comparison. I think what makes a story Lovecraftian is its characteristic nihilistic hopelessness. Things aren't just bad, they simply don't matter. Not only do you die and there's no afterlife, everything your ancestors and all your descendants will ever do is unimportant. A race of beetles will come along some day and will just be forgotten. You can't fight back because there's ultimately nothing to fight against. It's this thread of hopelessness that links a story like the Night Ocean with a story like the Shadow over Innsmouth. One has monsters in mythology, the other does not, but the same shrugging cosmic unconcern is manifest in both. It seems that many, if not most, later writers following in HPL's footsteps seem to ignore this. They try to fight back, as it were, by introducing concepts like Delta Green, the Wilmarth Foundation, or in the case of August Derleth, incorporating the mythos into a kind of Christian moral universe. For me, this introduction of hope negates much of the Lovecraftian horror. There's some great stuff in there, and these writers do a fine job of wearing the clothes of Lovecraft, but I find that sense of cosmic hopelessness lacking, which for me is the real tingle that one gets from a good HPL tale. There's something truly terrible about a horror like uh, that in The Color Out of Space that you can't do anything about, you can't even understand it. What are your thoughts on what defines a Lovecraftian tale? Uh, Jerry, I think you summed it up very well, and uh, my original idea for my first Fedogan and Bremer collection, Tales of the Lovecraft Mythos, was to uh, just have stories that had that cosmic indifferentism and so forth, whether there were any uh, mythological names or entities or not, might be, might not be, but it would have that uh, despairing void in it. 
I didn't wind up following through on it, though Willem Pugmire did already. He edited for me uh, one of my cryptic publications, Tales of Lovecraftian Horror, which uh, did have consistently that that approach. I just wound up breaking down and doing a, a kind of a new version of Derleth's Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, but with alternate choices. I, I think that was a good anthology, but... Um, yeah, it would be good to do a whole book that really sticks to this Lovecraftian cosmic futilitarianism. So I think that is central, and yet I think that you can do things with other Lovecraftian elements, like the grimoires and the books, or at least the themes, I mean, grimoires and the gods, or at least the themes underlying them. It doesn't have to be the recognizable names and so on. And uh, it seems to me that it can even have uh, an upbeat ending in which the horrors are banished, though probably only uh, deferring their victory, as in the Dunwich Horror. Some Lovecraft critics don't like the Dunwich Horror because they say it is unlovecraftian precisely uh, because uh, will um, uh, armitage and the good guys managed to uh, plug up the dike again i think that's being more lovecraftian than lovecraft but it is just a deferral after all um it's like okay we won this round and uh, very much like in uh, the case of charles dexter ward in which the old ones do not figure hardly at all i know yag sathoth's name is part of an incantation but it's not really in a standard mythos context yeah all right there is a hint uh so and so will cause the thing to breed in the outward sphere spheres that kind of has a mythos ring to it but generally it's about the return of this creepy spooky guy um but i think you can have a uh, a genuinely lovecraftian story one that reminds you of lovecraft and makes you feel like somebody has done the trick uh, there are stories, usually fan pastiches, which are enjoyable in their own right. I'm not turning my nose up at them. I even edited a, a short-lived series uh, called um, The Fan Mythos, which had a lot of rip-roar and fun stuff like that. Uh, and uh, you just have to decide, yeah, this is a different sort of thing and enjoyable in a different way. But that is a use of Lovecraftianism. Brian Lumley's uh, stories set in the dreamlands and so on. Oh, boy, I know there's a lot of screaming about this. But it makes me think of a discussion of the evolution of genres by Tsvetan Todorov, this great Russian uh, structuralist critic. I think he's talking... I think his jumping-off point is the detective novel and its evolution, but it's a wider applicability... He says that um, some people complain that so-and-so book is uh, not really, not truly a detective story or whatever, because it violates certain of the conventions of the story, the rules of the genre. And he uh, says, look, you don't seem to get it. This is the way genres evolve. Uh, you may not like the way it's evolving, but it's probably evolved already to get to the point 
uh, where you do like the story. So it's not like uh, some uh, they're bending the genre, and it may turn into a different genre. What the heck? Uh, but, I mean, like uh, locked room mysteries are very different from uh, hard-boiled detective stories, right? But they're they're kind of uh, under the same wing. And I think uh, what uh, Brian did with the Dreamland stories was to combine the Dreamland stories of Lovecraft, which are, um, you know, a kind of a sub-sub-genre in their own right, not typical Lovecraft mythos, with the inspiration of some of Lovecraft's other work, like, well, uh, the... the um, I guess, yeah, you'd have to call this a dreamland story, though, even though it's not particularly Dunsanian, the dream quest of unknown Kadath, and as Will, William Fulwiler showed years ago, the nameless city, which is practically an appendix to Burroughs' Pellucidar novels. Well, uh, he he combined uh, Lovecraft and Burroughs and, I think, The Wizard of Oz. And uh, I like the result uh, once I got over saying, oh, wait a minute, this isn't orthodox Lovecraftianism. I realized, well, let me just read it for what it is. And it's just amazingly ingenious and colorful. And so, yeah, it, it's somewhat Lovecraftian, but uh, it's it's borrowing from other genres and straddling the fences between them. And I can't say that's bad. I, one might say one prefers straight Lovecraft, and I understand that. That's fine. Um, but um, it does make it a little messy saying what is a true Lovecraftian story. But basically, I think you're right that, that it is that bleak cosmic vision that uh, makes a story uniquely Lovecraftian. And uh, so very good. You're very insightful, Jerry. And I mentioned the great Gary Myers. Let's listen to the great Gary Myers, because he's following up on a discussion we had maybe last time about the DeCamp and Joshi biographies of HPL. Gary says, Concerning the biographies, DeCamp versus Joshi, I read them both as they came out. And while I acknowledge the many excellences of the latter, it was the former, DeCamp, that made the greater impression on me. My teenage readings of Lovecraft, tales, letters, and yog knows what else, had imbued me with a lot of unhelpful attitudes about art and commerce. It was DeCamp who forced me to consider that living La Vida Lovecraft, starving in a garret to write beautiful prose that no one would ever read, might be seriously flawed as a career choice. Uh, and he says kindly, best geek ever, by the way. Uh, well, this is probably better since you're in it. Um, though, um, you know, some people might say, oh, Myers has sold out. You should embrace voluntary poverty and stick to your guns. Well, I think this guy uh, managed to uh, do both by getting his book The House of the Worm published by Arkham House and he's had other stuff published since then but nobody can read anything by this man and think that it's uh, a mere commercial fiction as Lovecraft uh, said about Derleth and others yeah some of that advice ain't bad I'm guessing some people rebuked DeCamp because they just said well Lovecraft had the right to be just a dilettante if he wanted to be yeah that's true but he's also selling stories so you can see where DeCamp's uh, posthumous advice uh, comes in 
the many-angled one, says, My question today regards the meaning of Shabnigurath's epithet, Black Goat of the Woods with a Thousand Young. The second part implies some kind of blasphemous fertility goddess whose children multiply like tribbles, as near as I can tell, Jim, they're born pregnant, and cause famine and ecological collapse. Charles Strauss went with this interpretation in his novella, Equoid. In case you want to look those up, that's Charles S-T-R-O-S-S and E-Q-O-I-D. Uh, could it be a reference to the theories of Thomas Malthus, you know, of overpopulation leading to disaster and so on? Uh, I kind of doubt it. Uh, it's uh, It could be, could be, right? Uh, I don't know of any statement by Lovecraft that would contravene that. But I I uh, think that uh, you you do have the element of Pan, the nature god, and with the rough association that the dryads and the satyrs and all that are his uh, his children, and that I, that seems to me. I mean, I always think of that anyway when I read this uh, this epithet. Uh, but also, I think there's we got to think of Baphomet. Uh, the uh, the uh, goat, the winged goat god, that was really sort of a late invention, uh, but formed part of Satanism, or what was thought to be Satanism. What do you think, by the way, of the, uh, the attempt by a, some group to put a Satanist Baphomet monument up, I think in Oklahoma, at the State House next to the Ten Commandments uh, thing? I... Church-state issues, I don't really care about that in this case. It just strikes me as hilarious, these little kids looking up to Baphomet uh, in the part of the statue as if it was uh, kids looking up to Jesus in a vacation Bible school poster. It's hilarious. Anyway, I think that's involved, even though Lovecraft does specify that Shubnigurath is uh, is female, it may be that, well, he also says, I think in a letter to Willis Conover, that Shubnagorath is, is to be described as a, a, a nebulous or cloud-like entity. And that would seem to mean that the, uh, the goatish image, unless he just changed his mind, I mean, he could have, is just a mythical symbol of something hard to actually imagine. Excuse me. And uh, there's also the possibility that the Thousand Young may be the members of her sect. Uh, in the um, Whisperer in Darkness, after all, in the cult liturgy that Wilmarth overhears, uh, it refers to the million favored ones, and uh, and also Shubnigorath. And that makes you wonder, if you're not talking about uh, her adoptive young, the, the humans or other creatures who worship her. Uh, I think th those <laughs> facts are enough to cloud up the issue. Uh, it's it's not absolutely uh, clear. I I'm sorry, I've jumped the gun. Um, the many-angled one also said, what can black goat of the woods mean? Could it refer to the scapegoat ritual? Leviticus uh, 16, is it? Perhaps it is meant to imply that she and her offspring bear some kind of curse. Unto the, uh, I should do the right voice. Unto the umpteenth generation shall they be cursed, says the Lord. Um, uh, 
could be, uh, but uh, I mean, you can't imagine they're wholesome for the rest of us in any way, so it could be. But the link with the scapegoat ritual, that is pretty fascinating because Leviticus says that two goats are to be set aside on the Day of Atonement, one of them sacrificed to Yahweh or Jehovah, the other one marked with a tag for Azazel uh, and driven out into the desert uh, for as a sacrifice for Azazel, who was, um, there's a goat and the demon. It doesn't say the demon is a goat, but there's the association. So that's sort of, I guess, part of the, uh, the Pan and Baphomet um, complex of associations that uh, might have reached Lovecraft. Thank you, Mini Angled One. Can I call you Manny? Eric Top says, uh, Oh, did I uh, skip? I think maybe I skipped part of. Yeah, yeah, sorry about this, Katie. Uh, you also said, Are there any other examples of um, esque or dash niverse? Uh, Lovecraftian monsters in pop culture I've missed. Well, of course, there's a huge ocean of it in Japanese anime, which I'm just familiar with in the broadest sense. But how about uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer? There's an interesting episode where the master, uh, the, the chief vampire, speaks of how the vampires were, I think, created or something by the old ones uh, back before there were human beings. And... Uh, they're trying to prepare for the return of the old ones. Holy mackerel, Andy. And uh, I think also of Men in Black when they bring in um, Will Smith's character and he sees all these people busy at their consoles and they're these, the twins that uh, um, Tommy Lee Jones points out. They strike me as looking an awful lot like the Yith Cone Race. And uh, I suspect, I mean, it's its not exact, but it's close enough. I have to suspect that's what they're supposed to be. Um, blue, I'm sure there's loads of other ones that I know of that I'm just missing at the moment. I know that in Superman, the animated series, a long time ago now, there was this great episode where somebody had uh, summoned up this octopoid being from another <clears throat> um, uh, universe. I think it was the same name given some warlock in a very old uh, either Superman or Justice Society story. I'm not sure. Was the name Kralku or something? Or am I getting that from A. Merritt? I forget. But it, it seemed obviously to be Cthulhu and uh, Superman seeks to enlist the help of Dr. Fate because being that this is magic it's really out of his league and he goes to the uh, the doorless uh, tower of Dr. Fate in Salem and says you only you can help with this and Fate tells him look I you know I really don't care I'm beyond caring what happens to mere human beings uh, just cosmic flotsam I, I'm looking for deeper secrets it just doesn't matter what happens to him and Superman says well, like hell it doesn't it, well, I'm probably going to get killed doing this but I got to go down trying and he does go back there and then at the in the nick of time, Dr. Fate appears and says that Superman's uh, 
determination was kind of a wake-up call and he figured yeah i guess really humans do matter that was really very interesting because it's not just the octopoid creature but this uh, quasi lovecraftian idea that dr fate has as an advanced being uh that uh he's uh that that humans are just negligible in the scheme of things um hmm Let's see. Yeah, sorry about that, Katie. You didn't want to forget that. Hmm. This is... Yeah. Uh, Eric Topp says, I watched the Let It Bleed episode of the Supernatural TV show recently. I thought the depiction of HPL at the start of that episode was terrible. Whoever wrote that managed to get just about everything about the great man completely wrong. Uh, have you seen any other TV shows or movies that botched HPL that badly? Yeah, they they uh, were perpetuating these cheesy myths that uh, urban legend type myths that Lovecraft was in connection with an occult society and all that stuff. Uh, it was uh, just, I mean, I guess they have the license to do that, but in a sense, it is misrepresentation. Uh, didn't really care that much for the. Uh, of the show um that was until uh, about a week ago that was the only episode i ever saw in the morning i happened to see uh on some rerun station a uh, an episode that was christmas themed where these people were th this couple uh, that were making yule wreaths were actually a couple of ancient british human sacrifice gods the the whole thing seemed a little silly to me though it was watchable anyhow um what about other shows that have botched hpl that badly well the one that immediately comes to mind is i'm sorry to say a jeff combs movie uh called necronomicon a little anthology film and the the frame has to do with lovecraft sneaking into miskatonic and uh, stealing the necronomicon and getting the ideas for some real bad stories that they uh, inflicted the viewer with that that again is just making lovecraft into a comic book character and again if you want to do that what do i care but it certainly was not in any way faithful to the actual lovecraft right so uh who else has uh depicted him that way lovecraft has been a character in a number of uh, very interesting short stories frank long uh in the the uh the space eaters um sprague de camp's balsamo's mirror oh uh, and uh they're uh, peter cannon's pulp time really really incredibly good and uh, a bunch of other ones uh one by st joshi that i've not read yet uh oh man it's a novel where Lovecraft teams up with uh, his favorite weird fiction writers. I can't think of it. Uh, but as I say, I've not read that yet, and uh, it's hard to keep up. But there have been a bunch, and they usually do a pretty good job, I'd say. Uh, Dick Lupoff's Lovecraft's book, uh, that's the abridged edition. I'm, I'm afraid I don't have the much longer original one that uh, was um, published decades later. But um, TV or movies, geez, I can't really think. Uh, those are the only ones I know, but I'd say the Necronomicon movie was at least as bad as that uh, Supernatural episode. 
Let's see. Um, Brian Rapinski says, how many copies of Call of Cthulhu do you think you have? Going through my small library of Lovecraft-inspired works, I came across five. Well, I, I must have at least that many because I know I've got at least uh, one, possibly two copies, like different printings of the Lancer paperback, which introduced me to uh, Lovecraft way back in, I guess, 66, 67. And uh, then there's uh, Blood-Curdling Tales, Best Supernatural Stories of H.P. Lovecraft. There's the Arkham House Dunwich Horror, the uh, uh, Wise and Frazier Anthology, Great Tales of Terror, is it, in the Supernatural? No, that doesn't have it. I'm sorry. That's got Rats in the Walls and Dunwich Horror. Sorry. Um, I've got uh, the Corrected Text edition of the of the Call of Cthulhu, no, the Dunwich Horror volume that has Call of Cthulhu in it and on the cover that ST did, uh, a product of his incredible labors and textual criticism. Then I believe it's in a British uh, large paperback. I've forgotten the title of it now, though. And, uh, oh boy, I, I must have at least uh, that many of them. Uh, and it's not like I collect them. Like Dirk Mosig, uh, just the, the great Lovecraft expert before uh, his disciples, uh, S.D. Joshi and Dave Schultz and others, this guy would uh, collect any book that so much as mentioned Lovecraft. Uh, and uh, this, I'm sure he doesn't have it all anymore, but uh, he, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a piker compared to him. Ooh, let's see. I'll, um, this from Rick Lye, L-A-I, an author, as I'm sure you know. I recently read Salambo, or however you say it. Uh, a historical novel by Gustave Flaubert about a, a rebellion of mercenaries in Carthage. Elsprey de Camp thought that Flaubert's book was a possible influence on Robert E. Howard's Conan stories. In one scene, the title character, a high priestess of the god Tanith, curses the mercenary hero by calling upon various ancient gods, including the, capital O, Other, he who may not be named. Could this passage be the inspiration for Lovecraft's references to him who is not to be named uh, and in, in the Whisperer in Darkness and the not-to-be-named one in the mound? Uh, Rick, I suspect it is. Uh, my uh, qualm is I don't happen to have the, the grasp of uh, what Lovecraft read and had in his library as uh, S.T. does. I could look it up, but um, I suspect he would have known about that. Uh, the only qualm I have is that it's possible that theme was more widely known, uh, and it may be based on uh, something in genuine mythology, but I don't know if that's true, and I think you got a pretty good theory there. I've worked with Rick on round robins and stuff. Ah, uh, let's see. This from Capitano, who I think is... Uh... Wait a minute. Yeah, th that's right. I've got the right one. I'm writing to you from sunny old England, a small village of West Halam in 
Hallam and Derbyshire. My study overlooks the local cricket pitch, pub and village church. You cannot get more English than that. I am not English, though I have lived in this green and pleasant land for twenty-odd years, but come originally from Stavanger in Norway. Uh, good luck with reading my questions in a Derbyshire accent with a Scandinavian twang. I got into HPL back in the mid-80s, found a horror book in the local library called HPL Tingenpa Terskalen. HPL translated into Norwegian. I love that first encounter with HPL. It was spellbinding. Then the role-playing game came around, and we all started reading it in English. Not easy reading HPL at the age of 14 when it is not your mother tongue. But even when you did not understand it all, it was fascinating. It felt like reading the Necronomicon. Our English got rapidly better, and we kept buying books not easy to get hold of in Norway. Uh, so holidays in England were great for stocking up the old Eldritch Library. By the mid-90s, I sort of left HPL. Most of my books got lost over the years, and I stopped reading fiction altogether. I kind of rediscovered him about ten years ago, through a collection of best-of stories, and was hooked again. I'm lucky, as I twice had the pleasure of discovering HPL. Now that I was more mature, the stories made a different type of impact. I also started investigating HPL himself, buying books containing his letters, biographies, and reading contemporary-slash-modern authors inspired by HPL. At times it feels like you know H.P.L. There is so much information in his letters when you start reading into it. I was fascinated about the story you told on your podcast about meeting him in the dream. We know so much about him that your brain managed to conjure him as up as close as a close mate, and you have a conversation with him, and make you have a conversation with him. I had my own HPL dream, not meeting him, but the elder things. It was a few years ago when the swine flu was around. I got something uh, that was rather bad, went to bed with a high fever, and decided to play a reading of At the Mountains of Madness as I was hallucinating in a fevered sweat. Wow, I was transported to the Antarctic city and met them. Don't get me wrong here, I'm not saying I met them for real in a cosmic hippie sort of way. The weird thing seemed, uh, the weird thing seeing them was the way they moved. They slid along very smoothly and surprisingly fast. They used felt so alien and otherworldly. That wonder did not last long, though the people with me in the dream started shooting at them with shotguns and hunting rifles, killed one and the other scampered. Got the feeling the old RPG response came through there. Managed to do it a few years later, when I was kind of sick, ended up in a dream on Joe Sargent's bus heading for Innsmouth. The bus journey was very vivid, but I lost the dream as soon as we got to Innsmouth. Probably for the best, not sure I can handle a fever dream containing Shoggoths. Got a few questions for the slime bucket. Well, more like a lost and found section of the bucket. One, Haunter of the Dark, original manuscript. There was talk back in the 80s that there was an original HPL manuscript in the hands of a collector in Australia. Possibly the Haunter of the Dark, or maybe an unknown story never published? Do we know what happened to it? Uh, geez, no, at least I don't. I think I would have heard. I do believe I heard the same uh, rumor, and it was long ago. I suspect that either it turned out to be... Uh, 
an urban legend, or maybe whoever has it is just clutching it tightly, sitting on it, uh, like uh, these guys did with the Dead Sea Scrolls for so long. But I'll uh, have to see if uh, there's been any more developments. I just sh surely think I would have heard of it since if it had happened. I hope I'm wrong, and it has been found. To HPL dressed up in 18th century clothing, apparently one of the Providence newspapers back in the 20s had a picture and a story of HPL wearing a tricorn hat. Has this news item ever been rediscovered? I think this was the beautiful portrait of Lovecraft in uh, his uh, uh, colonial era, uh, what, Georgian era uh, costume. In a letter, he said he felt like he would be more at home in that kind of garb because he'd be more at home in that age. I think this was Virgil Finley's um, portrait of him, accoutred in that manner. And I uh, think it appeared in Weird Tales. I could be wrong, but it may have been reprinted after his death in a Providence newspaper. I, I'm not sure, though, but we do have that, if it's what I'm thinking of. It's been reprinted a number of places. Three, the lost story of the haunted hotel. There have been rumors of a lost HPL story of a haunted hotel. Do you know anything about it? I think I heard something uh, about that, a fragment or a complete story, but I couldn't really tell you. Uh, I, I've never heard any more about it. I don't, again, I don't know if that turned out to be just a rumor or, or not. Uh, once again, if any of you know, please let us know. This is uh, just fascinating stuff. Don't want to say trivia because it certainly wouldn't be trivial. For HPL's letters sent to Sonia. Well, burnt, not much hope there. Such a shame she burnt them all. Would l have loved to read them. Oh, boy, yeah, that would be fascinating. Probably enough to fill another issue of uh, risque stories or lurid confessions, which I used to edit and publish. Five, wax recording of HPL's voice. He did have a wax recorder similar to the one in Whisperer, so there will be recordings of HPL's voice out there. Probably all gone now, but wow, if one could emerge after all these years. Yeah, I'm sure that has not happened. I'm sure I'd have known that because, you know, of course, there is a, a recording of Clark Ashton Smith, astonishingly. A brief one of Robert Ingersoll. It's just amazing to hear the voices of these guys. I just love to hear HPL, but I'm, uh, if, if that has been found, uh, people have been doing a good job of um, keeping it secret from me. Uh, let's see. Thank you. Uh, uh, let's see. Have I... Uh-oh. Uh uh, what I've been reading is from Mr. Rage or Raga Olson. So sorry. Um, this isn't Capitano. That's uh, another one. Let's get back to it. But to continue with this... Uh, Last thing, you ask for listeners' favorite HPL story. I keep changing my mind. It seems my favorite is whatever one I'm currently reading. I do, however, have my favorite scene in HPL, the dreams in the witch house when Gilman ends up on the balcony overlooking an alien city. That is just my favorite HPL scene ever. I even came back with a free gift and a radiated suntan. You reckon George Lucas read that before the double sunset in Star Wars? Well, I'd like to think so. But, uh, 
I guess the idea of, you know, having more than one son is enough of a science fiction thing. And I don't know if Lucas ever read any Lovecraft. Sure must have read Dune, though. Yeah, that is a goodie. Okay, let's actually read what uh, our brother Capitano said. I'm so sorry to mix you up here. I believe he's an Englishman also. I could be wrong. There are many Lovecraft pastiches and stories set in his universe, but are there any Lovecraft fakes? The art world is plagued by copies of valuable paintings masquerading as the originals, and commercial artists claiming to have discovered hitherto unknown works. They recently just think they found a known but lost Shakespeare play, interestingly. Um, often a painting is bought for enormous sums only to be revealed as a forgery. But it's in the interest of owners, agents, and sellers to <coughs> pretend it isn't. Uh, compared with much of the Bible being pseudepigraphical and uh, theologians desperately trying to explain away the signs of forgery... Yeah, there's a lot of there's a whole industry devoted to showing how Paul really could have written the pastoral epistles, or that Second Peter was really written by Peter. A lot of ingenuity, but ultimately unconvincing, I think. So, have any fake letters or stories of Lovecraft appeared on the market? Not that I know of in the case of the letters, but with the stories, uh, there's uh, nobody's made much of an attempt. I think they're all jokes, but. Ken Feig, in an amateur press association zine years ago, claimed to have found a story that um, scholars think Lovecraft did write because he, in his commonplace book, this list of ideas and so on, when he would use one, he'd put a check mark by it, and there's a check by something called Life and Death. Uh, some somebody has visions of dinosaurs in the remote past, and somehow it says life is more hideous than death. And there's a check implying he wrote it. Well, we don't know of that uh, story, but Ken claimed he had found it. Apparently, appeared in an, in one of the amateur journals that Lovecraft himself uh, contributed to. Well, S.T. and Charles Garofalo, Peter Cannon, a bunch of us went to uh, the New York Public Library looking through their amateur journal collections many years ago, trying to find this darn thing, and uh, never did. And I think eventually, from a couple of comments I read, Ken was... Uh, sort of working with George Wetzel to mount a, a kind of tongue-in-cheek hoax. Not a serious hoax, but I guess to see who would catch on. And uh, so th that exists, and it's the closest thing we're going to get to it, but it's it's a kind of friendly, uh, winking hoax. There's one thing I did that was intended to be a transparently silly joke. I mentioned a moment ago I edited a one-shot thing called Lurid Confessions based on the fact that um, Howard wrote a... Robert E. Howard wrote a story aimed at the confession uh, market. His uh, friend Novel and Price was writing for them, or trying to. And Carl Jacoby wrote uh, two or three things, and I got a hold of those. I don't think they were ever published. So I put this out as lurid confessions. Certainly had pulp author interest, and I decided to put this gag in there uh, that uh, 
where I said it looked like Lovecraft, perhaps at uh, Howard's suggestion, had decided to try his hand at a uh, at a confession story, and here it is. We've discovered it. It was called "I Wore the Brazier of Doom," uh, bylined Sally Tibald. That is spelled like Theobald. You know, he he used the name of an obscure poet, Louis. Uh, to bald as one of his pseudonyms, and so I forget Sally to bald, and uh, in it, it it sounds kind of like a typical vacuous uh, country girl goes to the city and gets in trouble, and but it turns out eventually that she's uh, she's somebody gives her this bra that has a stitch design showing the elder sign on each cup, and uh, somehow this summons this. Uh, Antarctic and old one and so on and so forth. It's just obviously ridiculous, right? The idea being that Lovecraft was trying to write a different type of story, but he just couldn't kick the habit. It's obviously a joke, right? I shouldn't keep stressing that because it's, uh, it's probably insulting to the guy who made the mistake I'm about to tell you about. Somebody was doing a huge bibliography of Lovecraft's work in France, and he uh, included this, and there's a note in the bibliography that says, it seems hard to imagine Lovecraft writing something like this, but I guess he did. Oh my gosh, I never meant for that to happen, though I have to admit I'm kind of pleased it did. So that wasn't exactly a hoax, but it sort of became one inadvertently. Uh, here's two other borderline things. The wicked clergyman, sometimes printed as the evil clergyman. Lovecraft did write this. It's very short, I mean, less than a page long. But it was simply an account of a dream he had that somebody exerted from a letter of his and published somewhere after his death. So, well, yeah, it is Lovecraft, but, you know, he didn't intend it as a story. I don't know if that matters. And then another one, The Thing in the Moonlight. Once again, Lovecraft writes a, this time, like one paragraph, very short account of a dream he had. And the uh, editor, can't think of his name, of the, uh, the fan magazine Bizarre, published that and added paragraphs to the beginning and the end and just signed it as, or printed it as by Lovecraft. That's a kind of pseudepigraph, I would say. So, um, uh, those are the examples I know of. There may be others. Hmm. Oh, what have we next? We're not quite done. Okay, yeah, Rick Lye again. Glad Rick's listening to the thing. My question concerns one of your own mythos tales, The Incubus of Atlantis, published in the Book of Ibon. The protagonist of The Incubus in Atlantis was Clark Ashton, an ancient high priest mentioned by Lovecraft and the Whisperer in Darkness as an in-joke on his friend and fellow writer Clark Ashton Smith. The Incubus of Atlantis concluded with the soul of Clark Ashton being transformed into wine. Is this supposed to be the same wine consumed by pirates in Clark Ashton Smith's A Vintage from Atlantis? You bet. Yeah. Glad you, you spotted that, Rick. Well, that's actually it for the Lovecraft Geek. I'm, uh, I've, uh, 
cleared out the uh, the slime bucket, but I know it won't be long before I have more uh, more great questions. Sure appreciate these. Keep sending them in, and if you have a few uh, piece a few pieces of Innsmouth gold to toss in, the Bible gig and his family are in perpetual financial crisis, uh, as HPL himself was, right? So um, if you can help out, uh, you might go to my website. Uh, robertmprice.mindvendor.com uh, vendors v e n d o r robertmprice.mindvendor.com and you'll see a PayPal donation button and you can send it to my uh, email address criticus c r i t i c u s at aol.com but uh, in any case I hope to meet you back here soon on the Lovecraft Geek. The Lovecraft Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix. Catch up with Mike Davis and Mythos Communities Everywhere by devouring the free online Lovecraft e-zine at lovecraftzine.com for events, news, and information. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to The Lovecraft Geek on iTunes. To catch up with Dr. Price's projects, purchase merchandise, and donate to help support Dr. Price and his family, please visit robertmprice.mindvendor.com. Thanks for listening to The Lovecraft Geek. I'm Torin Atkinson. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.